Timothy. We're in this series called The Roots of a Healthy Church. Our goal, of course, is to build healthy roots so that this church will, for a, a long period of time, indefinitely be healthy and be nourished by God's word. And so we're going to continue in that vein by reading 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3. If you have a Bible, open it up. If you uh, don't have one, there is one around you, and you can pick that up and read through that. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3, this is what we see. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy and dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have given us this morning. Uh, we pray that you would help us to understand it better as we read through it, as we study through it, that we would uh, really understand you better, that you might open up our hearts and our minds and change us this morning to be more like your son. Uh, we do want to lift up the Branch Church specifically this morning, and we just ask a blessing upon that congregation and Pastor Doug as he is leading there. We pray just for health and for um, sustained uh, spiritual vigor for him that he might continue to lead that church well and to preach the gospel effectively. And we pray that we continue to grow and thrive there in Corvallis. And we also pray that for ourselves, God, that you would uh, help us this morning to uh, better understand your word and to continue to grow in our spiritual lives and um, to continue to apply what you have taught to our lives so that we can better love and serve our community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so I thought I would begin this morning by reading a poem. Uh, I used to be an English teacher, as some of you guys know, so sometimes I like to throw in these things. But this poem uh, is, a, is a really good one. And it goes like this, nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour, then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. And that was written by Robert Frost, right? He was one of America's greatest poets, people say. Um, there's debate about whether he was a Christian or not, but he definitely, I think, was not a believer in God at all. Uh, but here's his poem, and it's well-known, it's a beautiful poem, but it is kind of sad, right? It captures the brevity of life, how quickly life passes. Time passes quickly, and he sort of begins by talking about the beauty of nature, these flowers growing and green leaves, but of course leaves fall, the sun rising in this golden light, and then of course the sun setting into darkness. And he talks about all of these things and talk, basically concludes that nothing gold can stay. 
Beauty doesn't last forever. Time passes. Life ends. Uh, the good things that we once had decay and pass away. Um, the prophet Isaiah actually describes something pretty similar to what he is talking about. There we read, all flesh is grass and all beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. So he is the author of life and of death, of course. Surely the people are grass. So it seems like the poet Frost, he's grabbing hold of something that is actually true, right? He's saying that valuable things, uh, which he defines as gold, um, eventually are lost, right? They pass away. He thinks nothing gold can stay. But that's not actually the testimony of the scriptures. The scriptures say something very different. The, um, the prophecy that Isaiah is giving continues in the next verse and goes like this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Um, so there are some gold things that do stay. And here Isaiah sp speaks specifically about God's word, right? It never fades. It will forever remain um, and that is definitely true. In this section of 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is, is really saying something similar amidst some warnings about two false objects of worship that often draw us away from that eternal God, which is power and money. Uh, look again at verse 6 and 7, which I think is really the heart of this text, where he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And then, he, and then why? Why is godliness with contentment so worthy of, of grabbing hold of, right? He says in the next verse, in verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. In other words, finding our greatest happiness, contentment, and joy in God is great gain because a relationship with God is everlasting, right? Unlike all of the other things that are gold in the world, uh, the love that we have with God and the display of that love in the form of godliness never passes away, right? But money, uh, wealth, possessions, power, authority in, in this world, all those things are fading and passing away. So with those things in mind, I decided I would call the message this morning, Stay Gold. Of course, I, I'm stealing that from S.E. Hinton's novel, The Outsiders, uh, which they made a movie about. Uh, maybe you've read that book or seen that. Um, I'm not going to go into that book, but <clears throat> that's one of the things that a character says in the book in light of this poem that we need to stay gold. Sadly, that book sort of ends similarly in a similar conclusion to Frost uh, that all gold things cannot stay. Uh, but that, of course, is not the main point of this text. This text is quite the opposite. So Paul's main point from chapter, or sorry, from verse six, I think. Um, if I could interpret it for us this morning, it would go something like this. Be content in the forever God, not in the fading world. So be content in the forever God, not in the fading world. Because contentment or joy in God will never fade away, right? If we are united with God through faith in Christ, then we can truly stay gold in that sense. But usually, that's a lesson that we have to learn the hard way. Right? That's not something that comes naturally to us. Our natural sinful tendency is to want to seek happiness and joy in things, in things that we can sort of put our hands around, that it's tangible to us. It's easy for us to understand. And so we, we go after things like popularity and status and money and those sorts of things because we think they will bring us joy. But in fact, they inevitably fade away. Um, 
So as I said a moment ago, this text does highlight kind of two main things that people are seeking after, I believe, which is power or authority and money. Uh, before we look at those, though, in the context of this uh, section, let me first uh, like define this word contentment. What does contentment mean? What's the meaning of this word? And in, in the simplest terms, it just means to be satisfied, right? And um, I, I know you guys don't have a ton of olive gardens up here, but when I was in California, we would go to the olive garden a lot with my in-laws. I don't know. It's like a chain Italian restaurant. How many people have been to the olive garden? Let's just, okay, good. Wow. Okay. So you, you guys will get this uh, reference. When I was thinking about contentment, the thing that came into my mind, I don't know why, but it was when you go to the Olive Garden and you order like a salad or a soup or whatever, um, pasta, the waiter or the waitress, they come over and they have the little block of cheese in the grater, you know, and they put the grater over your food and they're just like, okay, tell me when, you know, and they go until like you have this heap of cheese and then you're like, yes, stop. I am content now with that cheese. <laughs> to me, that was just helpful for my brain to, to so... I have had enough. That is the amount that I need. I am satisfied, right? That's, that's kind of what this is. Now, that's maybe a more fleshly definition, but uh, David, the psalmist in Psalm 23, maybe he says it a little better than I do. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So if I have God as my shepherd who's caring for me, who's leading me and guiding me and protecting me, I don't need anything else. I have everything I need. I am content. I am satisfied in God alone. So contentment in the Christian sense is to say, because I have God, I don't need anything else. Um, other things are given to me by God, maybe, but as long as God is the first in my list of uh, priorities, that is the source of all my happiness. All of the things that God chooses to give us are subservient to that, then we have our priorities in order. But very often, we get them mixed up, right? And so we should have the, the heart of David here. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, that is what contentment is. But the Apostle Paul highlights again two sources of contentment that maybe we go after, we seek after, other than God, um, that we need to avoid. So the first principle to take note of today, point one, finding contentment in fading power leads to chaos. And we see that in the opening few verses, in verses three through five, in that section, he's addressing these false teachers, and he's already been, we've been talking about these false teachers for several weeks now, and so we don't need to go too deeply into that, but these teachers, and we get a little more information about sort of what they're doing, and most importantly, what their motivation is behind what they're doing, and ultimately, it is to gain spiritual power, maybe popularity would be another word, and to gain wealth, right? So Paul says in verse three that they're teaching things that are contrary to the sound word of Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the beginning of their downfall. They're teaching things that are contrary to what Christ has taught. And just as we saw in the chapter before this, uh, the Apostle Paul quotes Jesus as Scripture. And so we know that the teachings of Jesus were, in fact, Scripture. Pastor Todd alluded to this some weeks ago. And here Paul is confirming, again, that same idea. In fact, during the time that this letter was written by Paul to Timothy and the Ephesian church, um, the book of Mark and Matthew, those gospel accounts of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, all of his work, would have already been in circulation for several years, uh, most scholars think. So it's very likely that these, this church has already um, been able to hear that account, or many have experienced it while they were there, while Jesus was alive, because it was that early of a time. But 
All that to say that Paul opens up by saying that sound doctrine or true teaching only comes from the sound words of Jesus alone. And as long as a teacher's message, whoever you're talking with about the Bible, whoever you're listening to on a podcast or reading in a book, if that teacher is teaching in accordance with what Jesus taught and what the scriptures teach or what, as he says, accords with godliness, then it is godly and it is true teaching. But these teachers were not interested in that. They were interested in showing how, uh, you know, intellectually superior they were with all of their secret knowledge that they had learned, some new insights that they had gained, which are not accordance with Jesus' teaching. And so they were essentially being puffed up with conceit. That's what we see in verse 4 there. They were filled with um, conceit, right? They were puffed up, and they thought they knew it all. They were basically acting like know-it-alls. But as Paul says, they actually knew nothing which is very common. That's usually the case when you meet someone who acts like this. They, they act like they know everything about a certain subject, and if you press them a little bit, you find out they actually know very little or nothing at all. Um, I can remember a time when I was in fifth grade. I was living uh, in Forest Falls, which is a small mountain town in California, and there was like the, the, the population of that town was about 1,000 people, so it was really small, and it was sort of strange environment for me, but there was this kid that lived up the street, and he was the kind of kid who, like, was desperate for friends, so he pretended to know everything, right? He would come down and talk with us and talk about all of the information he knew about the animals in the area and how to survive, all these survival techniques and trapping animals, and I don't know, he had all these things that he, was, he would go on and on about, and really, we would look at each other and, and think, I don't think he actually knows what he's saying. He just wants to, like, you know, try and make, this is his way of making friends or something. But he swore he knew everything. And so one summer, he said, oh, I know about this cool cabin place in the woods. I know the secret hike. Like, let's go on this hike. And so, you know, we were kids. We're dumb. It was summer. And so we're like, let's go. And so we follow him on this hiking trip. And after two hours, we're completely lost in the woods. No idea where we're going. The sun is setting. There's rattlesnakes rattling everywhere. I thought, this is it. This is where I die. This is my, this is where they will bury me here. And um, we, we were confused. So even though he thought he, or he said he knew what he was doing, and he said he knew where we were going, he got us completely lost in the woods. Uh, thank God that um, as we were walking and, and the sun was setting, we saw some lights off in the distance and we were able to connect with some counselors at a Christian camp that was way up there at like this lake. And uh, they found us and we were able to get out of there, obviously, so I'm here today. So uh, I survived. I survived the... Anyways, the point is, this guy said he knew it all, acted like he knew it all, but really he was leading us in to get lost. I mean, to lost. And it could have been very destructive. Uh, and sadly, that's similar to what's happening here. These teachers are talking a big game, saying they know what's going on, and they're leading people into confusion and chaos. Um, that's what we're seeing. And the proof really is in the outcome of their teaching in large part, right? They were stirring up controversy within the church. That's what Paul describes. He's saying that their teaching was bringing envy and strife and slander and suspicion and constant fighting among, amongst the people. So their pursuit of this spiritual authority, this power, this popularity was leading this Ephesian church into a great amount of chaos. Um, so one good question that you might ask yourself as you're listening to someone who's teaching the Bible or 
if you're looking at a particular ministry, um, what are the results of the teaching that you're seeing? What kind of fruit is coming out of that ministry? Um, are the people being led into confusion? Is there strife and infighting? Is there uh, division and that kind of thing? Is, are people learning to love God more and love people more? Or are they learning to be selfish and try to, you know, get what's theirs in that kind of mentality? Of course, that's not the only thing to consider as you're thinking about uh, teaching that you're trying to discern. The first and most important thing is, does this teaching align with the sound words of Jesus like we looked at a moment ago? But this is still an important thing to consider. Is their message or this message causing constant friction among people, as verse 5 says? Uh, now, one thing I, I was thinking of we, I should probably mention is that this doesn't mean that there isn't any place for good faith discussions amongst Christians or even friendly debates uh, with Christians and especially with non-Christians, those who don't uh, understand the gospel or haven't become a Christian yet, right? Peter makes this clear in his letter in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. And then he adds this very important little bit of sentence that gets overlooked, sadly, yet do it with gentleness and respect, right? So there's a way in which we need to interact with people we're speaking with. Um, it seemed like if you look at the description of what Paul is saying is happening in the Ephesian church, there was very little gentleness and respect happening. There was envy and strife and difficulty. Um, so Peter here is saying that firstly, we need to be able to give non-Christians, people who are interested in the gospel or you know, people that we're coming into contact with, uh, a reason for the hope that we have in Christ alone and why we have that hope. But then also he gives this, uh, I think this applies to the interactions that happen within a church. They need to happen gently and with respect. So again, I don't think that's what's happening in this church. And I think that's what Paul is bringing to light in his objections to these teachers. So true teaching and respectful discussions brings unity and it brings peace and the love of God um, and it is in accord with the tr sound words of Jesus. But the real kind of heart of this text, I think, is why. Why were these teachers uh, pursuing this way of ministry? Why were they doing this, you know? Why were they trying to stir up this kind of controversy? Well, verse 5, I think, makes it clear when it tells us that they thought, they imagined that godliness... Uh, is a means of gain, was a means of getting something for themselves. They were selfishly trying to gain power or wealth from, uh, from the people that they were teaching these things to through their intellectual superiority, through their you know, ability to capture people's attention, but really they were leading them astray. So they were not actually pursuing true godliness, this is one of the parts of the text that was kind of hard, a little bit difficult for me to get my head around, is because he says they were pursuing godliness as a means of gain, which doesn't sound very godly. And so, in fact, they were seeking a fake or a false godliness, not a true godliness. And we see this really later in Paul's writing in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll get there in a few weeks, maybe a few months, but we'll get there uh, soon enough. Um, and there he says that these people quote, have the appearance of godliness, but without the power, or they have an appearance of godliness, but actually they are very sinful, right? So it's not that they were tr pursuing true godliness, but they were pursuing a fake 
godliness, a false godliness that was giving people the impression that they were so holy and worth listening to when in fact they were just trying to swindle people. That's really what's going on. So these people were not content with God alone. They didn't find their satisfaction in him only, and then that leads them to use you know, people, or really use God and use religion to take advantage of people so that they can get personal gain. They never truly loved God. They were just using God as a way to gain power and wealth for themselves. Tragically, uh, this still happens today, and it's a hideous thing that happens. Uh, there are people who would call themselves Christian leaders who stand in stadiums and have TV shows, and uh, but really what they're doing is they're creating chaos in the life of the people who are listening to them. Um, they get obscenely wealthy with, you know, private jets and many cars and multiple million dollar homes and that sort of thing, uh, while the, the people that they're serving uh, end up falling into confusion and often get cleaned out of what money they had as they are participating in this, in this false gospel. I know uh, if you're not a Christian here today, maybe you're visiting us or maybe you're curious about Christianity, this is one of the dynamics that probably has you questioning the whole Christian thing. If there are people out there who are doing this, how can I believe uh, what the Bible teaches or what Jesus, what Christianity is at all? I know for me, before I became a Christian, before I read the Bible for myself, before I looked at the words and understood what they meant for myself, that was one of the main reasons, one of the big reasons why I didn't want to have anything to do with Christians because I saw these kinds of things, these corrupt ways of, uh, you know, ministry, and it just gave me such a bad taste in my mouth for what Christianity was. Well, I would just say, hear me out. Listen to what the words of the actual Bible are. See what see what we're studying today. And what we're studying today and many other scriptures throughout the New Testament or throughout the entire Bible teach us that that way of living is directly opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the truth that we see here, right? Don't allow those fake representations of Christianity blind you from seeing what is truly here and allow this to, to you know, um, get into your brain and allow, give it a chance to listen to. So Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is there preaching, and he explains what true leadership and what true power looks like when he talks to his disciples. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. And really what that means is they're using their power for personal gain. That's the corrupt way uh, of power. But then he goes on and talks to his disciples saying, it shall not be so among you. My Christian leaders, uh, my Christian family, it should not be like that among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the Son of Man was a term that Jesus used for himself, saying, I am uh, the Messiah, the Savior who would come. And so he's saying, I came not to be served, but to serve. And he went so far as to give his life as a ransom for many. He paid the, the price, the penalty of our sins. So Jesus' ministry was never to gain power or to gain wealth, but rather to serve, and even to the point of death. 
right? And all of us, though, because of our sinfulness, because of the things that we have done against God and disobeying God, deserve death, and we deserve separation from God. But uh, Jesus stepped into that situation, and he did what really the opposite of what many religious leaders would do. Um, He actually served and loved and, and showed us the way of truth, right? He lived a life of humility and service and relative poverty. And eventually, he gave his life on a cross uh, unjustly um, on our behalf so that we might, we might be able to put our faith and our trust in him. He made a way for us to receive this eternal life if we would trust in him and turn to him in faith and follow in his footsteps, not these false teachers who do not represent Christianity, but in his footsteps. Because these teachers, as Paul describes in verse 5, are depraved in mind, right? They are not following the sound teachings of Jesus and his example that we see there. They were ultimately not content. They weren't satisfied in God alone. Instead, they wanted power. They wanted uh, wealth. They wanted all of these kinds of things. And eventually what happened is they were surrounded by this chaos. <laughs> the, the church was falling into a bunch of chaos. Um, so that's, that's if we seek after power, that's where we will end up. But there's another big source of temporary happiness that we often will um, try to seek after in order to bring us joy. And of course, that is money which I think is kind of the main uh, emphasis of this section. So the next point is this. Finding contentment in fading money leads to destruction, right? We see this really in verses 8 through 10. So we kind of hopped over 6 and 7, which we will return to yet again. Um, But in 8 through 10, he he begins to talk about the dynamics of um, the evils, really, of loving money. And we see that in verse 9. It says, this pursuit plunges people into ruin and destruction. And of course, we see this principle very clearly in verse 10 here, one of the most often misquoted or misunderstood verses of the Bible. Uh, Let's put it on screen and see it for um, ourselves. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. That's what the verse says. And yet, Many people sort of misinterpret this verse, and they say that that money is the root of all evil, and that's not exactly what it's saying. Money, like any other created thing, is neutral, right? It's not inherently evil in and of itself. Uh, The truly evil thing, or the the thing that brings God dishonor that's being discussed here is the love of money, or the worship of money, or the idolatry of money. It's it's messing up that order, and God is no longer the, the source of contentment, but love now, or sorry, money becomes that source of contentment. So money, though, ultimately is just a lifeless thing that can be used for good, or it can be used for evil. But, I mean, if money was evil in and of itself, would God encourage us to use money to worship him? We see this in Proverbs 3, which we put on the screen when we put the giving screen up every um, Every week, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. So if money were evil, would God tell us to use money to worship and honor him? No, of course not. And so the money itself is not evil. It's the love of money. 
Or even just a few verses later in chapter 6, verse 17, he addresses the people who are wealthy in the Ephesian church. And we've kind of talked a little bit about the dynamics between the wealthy and the poor in the Ephesians church. But there he tells them to use their wealth as a means of worship and service and ministry. And so money can be and is um, a good thing if it is used the correct way, if it is in the correct order. So that's just an important thing to take note of. And I will say that for me, it's been an encouragement that this church is a church who I think understands this dynamic well, by and large. Um, this church is generous, and we continue to see how you guys are uh, using your wealth to honor the Lord and to uh, see the ministry grow, and that's a great thing. Uh, but it's always something we need to keep at the forefront of our mind because money can be a big distraction, right? And the contentment that we, we seek in money can really lead us astray. As this said, this says, it is a root of all kinds of evil if we allow the love of money to get in the way of God, um, right? It is not the root of all kinds of, e or, or of all evil, but it is one root of many kinds of evil, um, or as the uh, social uh, commentator, Notorious B.I.G., put it, mo money, mo problems. That's true. That is true. That is basically what this is saying. He's saying the more money you have, it is difficult to understand how to interact with that. But if we have the order correct, we are in good shape. So here's the principle, I think, for us today, which is love God and use money to do that. Don't use God and love money. So love God and use money. Don't use God and love money. Or again, be content in the forever God and not the fading world, right? Because money goes fast, right? Money fades away quickly. It seems like, you know, the money comes in, payday comes, and then the bills are due, and then the next day, the money's gone. Uh, am I the only one who feels that way sometimes where you feel like, I just got paid, and then all of a sudden, yeah, we got to tighten up the reins. We're, we're already out of it. Um, I think Proverbs 23 says it well. Here it says, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from considering of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. I just think of like a little stack of bills with wings and it's just literally flying off into the sky because that, that's truly what happens sometimes. Uh, money, it seems, is there, and the next moment, it just fades away quickly. But God doesn't do that, right? God is eternal. He is with us forever. He truly stays gold. And the godliness that comes from walking with him um, is the same. It, it is eternal. It's never fading away. Um, so if we put our love and contentment in God, he will never let us down. If we put our love and contentment and our pursuit uh, completely in money, then we will fall into all kinds of destructive behaviors, all kinds of poor choices, and it will lead us into destruction. I mean, think of how many famous person, people that you can think of who have gained a, a great degree of wealth and all those sorts of things, and it only kind of led them down a dark path of, who knows, substance abuse, families in ruin, physical and psychological problems. Of course, this doesn't happen all of the time, um, you know, as long as you have your priorities in order, you can manage money well, but often it can lead you into dark places. Uh, did you know that uh, people who win millions of dollars in the lottery very often end up worse than they were before? 
Uh, according to the National Endowment for Financial Education, 70% of lottery winners end up broke in seven years. So they win millions and end up broke in seven years. Uh, some have called it the curse of the lottery. I think there's maybe like a docu-series about this out right now. I don't know where it is, but um, they, they follow all these different people and how the lottery actually ended up sort of destroying them. And there's a lot of complex things happening there. It's not just the money, but that is one of the things that's pushing them in this direction. Um, I think w one thing that was interesting I heard some years ago, Jim Carrey, uh, as a kid who grew up in the 90s, he was a, a famous actor. I mean, he's still a good actor and um, very wealthy, made a lot of success. And he once told a Canadian um, journalist that he was speaking with this. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. And so he actually achieved that level of popularity and success and clout and money. He, he was estimated to be worth about $180 million. I, I mean, I think currently he is. Um, so he's a wealthy guy, and he's saying he achieved all those things, he pursued all those things, and it only led to emptiness. He never had fulfillment. And he, he has some interesting things that he says about God and spirituality. I don't think he's a Christian, but, uh, you know, pray for him. Hopefully, maybe the gospel will get through to him. But uh, I think those are wise words. Another example, maybe from ancient times, a more ancient example, is from the... Um, the great Greek conqueror, Alexander the Great. He lived about 350 years before uh, Jesus, and he was one of history's most powerful and wise, or not wise, rich, wealthy men. I don't, maybe he was kind of wise. I mean, he, his armies were never defeated, and so he took over many countries and amassed for himself a great amount of wealth and power. Um, at, uh, historians estimate he might have been worth something like $32 trillion at the height of his power. Um, and so he was someone who achieved these great milestones. And yet, on his deathbed, he told them this, When I am dead, carry me forth with my hands not wrapped in cloth, but laid out so that all may see that they are empty. They're empty. His hands are empty. His great wealth and power was meaningless in the face of death, in the face of the end of his life. And as we read here, like Paul says, we brought nothing into this world. We can take nothing out of it, right? So why are we pursuing all these things that we need? I don't know if you guys have seen that bumper sticker. It was pretty popular for a while that just said like, you know, he who dies with the most stuff wins or something like that. And it's like, eh, okay, you, that, that's how you want to live your life. But that's really the mentality of, of, of this. If, if that is your goal, you're going to find at the end of your life that you have nothing to hold and nothing um, of any real value. Um, so what is worth real value? What is worth pursuing is eternal and unfading, and that is God himself, a relationship with God and the godliness that comes from that relationship and the good that it does in the world. Um, so that should be our pursuit because when we pursue money, it only leads inevitably to destruction. Thirdly, last point, we'll conclude with this. Finding contentment in the forever God leads to eternal life, right? That's the goal. Uh, we, we want to have something that will stay gold. And so that's why he says godliness with contentment is great gain because we gain something eternal, something unperishable. 
Jesus describes this in Matthew chapter 6 wonderfully when he says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if your heart is set primarily on gaining some level of authority or power or popularity in the world, notoriety, right? You will inevitably cause chaos in your relationships and it will lead you to uh, all kinds of difficult situations. And eventually, that power will fade away, right? You will become, uh, you will lose what once you had. Or if your heart is set primarily on getting money, getting wealth, uh, building a bigger business than the next guy and cutting all the corners to do it or stepping over people to get that promotion that you feel like you deserve and pushing other people aside to do it, then even if you get that wealth or you get that money, it will eventually fly away as the proverb says, right? It will eventually fade into nothing. But if your heart is set on God alone, the eternal spiritual treasures are are kept for us in heaven, as Christ has said. He has prepared a place, and he will go, and he will make that place for us as we put our trust and our faith in that forever God. You may even gain some healthy level of authority and popularity on this earth, and you can use it to give life, and you can give truth to others as long as the priorities are in order. You may even gain uh, a good degree of wealth. Perhaps you have um, a business that is successful and you end up earning good deals of money and you're able to care for your family, but you can use that money to bless the, the world. You can use that money to worship and honor God by giving to ministry, by funding the work of the ministry. That's sort of what's going to be spoken of next week. Um, so, It's not that that's an important thing to think about. If your heart is set on God, all those other things fall into place. Ultimately, you will have that lasting treasure of a relationship with God that is everlasting, that stays gold. So be content in the forever God, not in the fading world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we long to see your beauty so that we may find our contentment in you, that we can be satisfied in you alone. And we're so grateful that you have made a way for us to achieve that, for us to uh, be united with you and to have an eternity, to have treasures that are in heaven with you. And you are that ultimate treasure, God, a relationship with you, peace with you when we did not deserve it. And so we pray that you would help us, God. Help us to keep our focus on you. Help us to find our contentment only in you, not in the material things that that so easily pull us away or not in popularity or power or authority and those sorts of things that we try to go after, God. Help us see the right way to love you and use those things to love others and to honor and worship you. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name.